If you have a Bible, please open it to the book of Matthew. We'll begin reading from the fifth chapter of the book of Matthew, verse 17, here in just a moment. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can always find one in the pocket of the pew in front of you, and Matthew 5.17 will be found on page 760 of that Bible. There are things in this world, and this is a generalization, I understand that, but there are things in this world that people either tend to hate or they tend to really love. One of those things, I think, is jazz music. You either really appreciate jazz music or you really despise jazz music. For those who love it, they see it sort of as the purest form of music. It's extemporaneous. It's experimental. It pushes the theory of music to the very edge while building on all that has come before it. Others just want people to play the notes already. My kids generally dislike jazz music. I can tell that they do because when I sing the jazz notes, because they're troglodytes, hide abound in their ways, they simply say that I'm out of tune. <laughs> it's not my fault that they're limited to the pentatonic scale, and I am not. So they don't, they don't appreciate me singing the notes within the notes, man. Same kind of attitude a lot of people have about the law. It drives either people to loving it and to hanging on to it in ways that are possibly inappropriate or to driving them away from the law in also ways that are inappropriate. We have Seventh-day Adventists who hold so tightly to the law that they continue to strain about the dietary regulations and Sabbath regulations and things of that nature. And then we have antinomians on the other side who would say that the law not only has no purpose for us, but no function for us. It has no place for us. And they would say, if you even are going to do daily devotions, you might as well stick to the New Testament because it's new and it's, it's there for us and we don't really need to bother with the old anymore. But to be honest, the law can be like jazz to us in the sense that it just doesn't seem to resonate with the, the music of the New Testament. Why should we, or even should we, pay attention to the Old Testament? Why should we listen to the Old Testament law when we have the new? What in the world does it possibly offer us? And when we ask these sorts of questions, people in the West have run to one person in particular. That person is Paul. And Paul has much to say about the law. Paul never demeans the law. He always upholds it as good. But he also has very difficult and, and sometimes, if we're being honest, somewhat dismissive things to say about it. But Paul is not the only word, and even the final word, when we come to dealing with the law, we would do well to consider not just what Paul says, but what Paul's Lord says about the law and listen well to the words of Jesus. And if we were going to listen to the words of Jesus in reference to the law, there is probably no place in all of the canon that is better than in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. And as we ruminate on this particular passage, we should keep in mind just how momentous a, a, a thing Christians dealing with the law is. It is primarily Jesus' teaching on the law that put him on the outs with the Jerusalem leadership. It wasn't just his Christological claims. The thing that really puts them off almost all the way through the gospel is the way in which he handles things like Sabbath requirements. He continually heals on the Sabbath. That drives them nuts. But it's not just that. The very first Christian martyr was Stephen, whose problem with as the Jews saw, his problem with the temple and with, with the law was, was a major reason why he was put to death. It was one of the major problems within the early 
Christian church, both Acts 15 and the whole book of Galatians, goes on to talk about how Christians' understanding and dealing with the law became so much of a problem. Today, it is still difficult, it's still debated, and it's still important. And we're not so ambitious to think that those problems will be alleviated today. I'll be honest with you, Anytime I have to teach on the law, preach on the law, I always feel this sort of conflict within me. I I haven't nailed all of it down. I don't know exactly how to work through all of it. On the one hand, we have to uphold its importance and its goodness as the word of God. And on the other hand, we have to reckon with the fact that we are under no wise obligated to keep the law anymore. And if you think that you've got those things nailed down, you're a better person than I am. Or you're more deluded than I am. I don't know which way you want to take that. You do your own introspection. I won't do it for you. So we don't have a chance this morning to kind of eliminate all of the difficulties. The goal, I think, is simply to kind of give a a framework by which we can start to work through our understanding of the law and how the law is to relate to us by and through the words of Jesus this morning. So let's go to those words. If you have your Bible, please read with me, beginning in Matthew 5, 17. This is the word of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This too is the word of our Lord. Four short verses, incredibly compact little section of scripture. I have three points to make from this. The first one being what exactly Jesus says, so you know my point is right and true. Jesus fulfills the law. Jesus fulfills the law. Jesus starts by cutting off some sort of interpretation of his words, either words that are to come or his actions. And certainly, as Matthew writes this, these are sort of objections that people will bring up. Don't, doesn't it seem like Jesus is just abolishing the law, getting rid of the law, throwing the law away? Jesus wants to cut that off at the very start. I'm not abolishing the law. The word abolish is a very strong word. When used of, of buildings, it's like a total destruction and deconstruction of them. It's a removal of all the brick, the kind of thing that Jesus says is going to happen to the temple on the last day. No one brick will be set upon another brick. It's, it's making a complete mess of the thing. And when he talks then about the law this way and the prophets, he means that he hasn't come to completely dismantle them in such a way that they are of no use and no, no good for anybody anymore. That, that He's not trying to get rid of them and set them all on fire. And and if that happened, that people would then turn and go, well, I guess that's okay. He is not, as it were, trying to make it null and void, but rather he insists that he has come to fulfill it. The question then is obviously, what does he mean by fulfill it? 
it cannot simply mean that Jesus has just come to finish it off and to end it and to mean that it has no application for us, no importance for us today, because that comes really far too close to just what he means when he says, I haven't come to abolish it. It also can't mean that he's simply come to obey it, because after all, we have a word for obey, and this isn't it. And it also doesn't mean that he has just come to teach us the law, because he has come to fulfill it. He hasn't come to teach us how to fulfill it, This word fulfill has been used quite a bit up to this point in Matthew. It's been used to speak to something about how Jesus fulfills the prophecy and fulfills the position of Messiah, that he does the things that the Messiah needs to do. He is accomplishing God's will for his life as the pinnacle of the entire Old Testament. As the Old Testament lays that out, Jesus does those things. And so it helps to point out that What he says that he is about to fulfill, that he's not abrogating, that he's not abolishing is the law or the prophets. And so, although law is going to be what he focuses on, he's clearly going to come back and talk about commandments, and and this makes us think of the law as the law really is, right? We think of the law as the law of Moses, the commandments that were laid down, that you are to do these things, you're not to do these things. It's clear by saying the law or the prophets that Jesus has in mind more than just the law as the written code of do's and do nots and shalls and shall nots, but rather he has in mind the entirety of basically the Torah. The Torah was known as the law. The prophets were known in Matthew's terminology as everything that comes after that. This means not just the law itself, but all of the narrative, everything. Jesus is fulfilling those things as an example Example that we've used recently, when we were going through the book of Exodus. We were doing that, we read just about every section of Exodus, except for two very long sections where God outlines exactly how the tabernacle is meant to be made and the design for it, giving exact instructions for how it's to be carved and what it's to be carved out of and how big all those things are. And then later on, the Israelites doing those things to the exact specifications that God has laid out. And when we talked about those things, we, we noted some very particular things about what the tabernacle was made to be like. It seemed very clear that the tabernacle was made to be a depiction of heaven, that it was made to be a depiction of of Eden, even, and therefore it was made to be a depiction sort of 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 a new creation. It wasn't just in the details of how God made it, but even of how Moses wrote that account that gave those indications. But even as that was what the tabernacle seemed to be implying, that it's a new creation, that it's a new Eden, that it's a picture of heaven here on earth, we also realize that this is something that it symbolized, but it could not possibly achieve. Priests went into the tabernacle. The high priest went into the Holy of Holies. Not everyone. God dwelled generally among his people, but it wasn't like in Eden when he walked with Adam. It was meant to be a picture of a new creation, but it certainly was not a new creation. It showed the intention of God without ever bringing that intention to its fulfillment. It points to a reality that it never brought about. Ultimately, it is expressed in who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who now truly does bring a new creation. Jesus is the one who promises the thief on a cross, you will be with me today. We know it, it said in paradise, but it means in the garden. You will be with me in that garden, in Eden today. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Everything that the law spoke about, every intention of the law, all that the law had purposed, all that God purposed through it, every intention that God had in bringing not just the promise to Abraham, not just the details of the Mosaic law, but bringing his people out of Egypt, allowing them to wander in the way. All of the details of the Torah find their summation and their fulfillment in Jesus. And so Jesus says the law will stand. He says, I say to you truly, until heaven and earth pass away, the law will stand. Not an iota, not a not a line of the law. You can't remove a letter of it. You can't remove a dash from a letter, not a jot, not a tittle, not, not the crossing of a T or the dotting of an I will I allow to pass from the law. And it says, until heaven and earth pass away. Many people hear that and they think, oh, that means eternity. I don't think that it means eternity. Jesus will say later in the 24th chapter that heaven and earth will indeed pass away, but my words will never pass away. I think that, that he's trying to get at, at something that will be a momentous occasion. This, this idea of heaven and earth passing away is, is apocalyptic language. It's, it's the language of, of the end times. It's the language of, of a grand cosmos being upheaved and overturned. And sometimes when that apocalyptic language is used, we, we think that it needs to be sort of literal, but oftentimes it's not meant to be taken literally, it's meant to be taken figuratively or about our emotions or about a theological conclusion or something like that, so, so that you're not just taking my word for it. You can take the word of the Apostle Peter. One of the best examples of how apocalyptic language is used like this is Pentecost, and then all of the tongue, the spirit falling upon the people, and they're speaking in tongues, and people are hearing languages that they couldn't hear and understanding them. And it's all very weird, and Peter needs to explain it. So he starts by reminding everybody that they're not drunk. And he goes on to say, what, what is going on here is the fulfillment of Joel 2. And what he quotes as being fulfilled in Joel 2 are these verses that this is Peter speaking, quoting Joel in Acts 2, verses 29 through 31, I will show wonders in the heavens above and on the signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And Peter says, this is being fulfilled in your hearing. And people were like, yeah, the, the sun is, like, they were amazed at hearing other languages. They didn't look up at the sky and be like, why is the sun so weird? Why is the, the moon bloody? Because the whole point of using that language is to say that what you are hearing is an ending of the cosmos. It, it, is, it is a grand upheaval. It is what we tend to use language like it's earth shattering, right? But we don't actually mean that the earth has been shattered by it. What we mean is that, that it, it is an upheaval of everything that we knew. This is now, Peter says, the end time. I think that's what Jesus means here as well, because he gives us another time signature. He says, until heaven and earth pass away, or until all is accomplished. And all was accomplished on the cross. All was accomplished in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we need to understand something about what he means when he says, it will not be abolished, but it will pass away. Abolish can't mean passing away. 
It can't mean that in passing away that the law is of no use to us anymore or no good to us anymore, that because Jesus has come and lived and died and resurrected again, that, that now we don't have to care about the Old Testament. Now we don't have to care about the law of Moses, but we can merely move upon our way. Has to be something distinct from that. Imagine that you had a watch that was a pocket watch. It was owned by your great, 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 great grandfather. And he used it because he was an engineer on the railroads. And he had to keep accurate time, which was very difficult back in the mid-1800s, as he went from station to station and town to town. And he needed to do that because in order to keep the trains running on time, in order to keep America growing, in order to keep people getting the goods and services that they needed, he had to make sure that that train got from point A to point B and arrived there at the right time. Pocket watches were expensive, and so he had to have a good one that wouldn't break down on him. So he passes it down. He spent a lot of money getting it. It was important for his job, and he passed it down. And he passes it down, and his father passed it down, or his son passes it down to his son and to his son until it comes into your possession. That watch cannot possibly have the same meaning for you that it had for your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. It just can't possibly have it. Even if it works, you don't ride the rails making sure that your train gets from point A to point B on time by a pocket watch. If you do it by anything, it's by a clock that the train has on it or by your phone. The pocket watch. Thank you, Jimmy. The jokes will come later as well. The pocket watch symbolizes something different to you. Its function's not the same anymore. It connects you back to your dad. It's a reminder of your dad passing it down to you. It's a reminder even more of your connection back to history, back to your great-great-great-great-grandfather, to your understanding my family helped the westward expansion of America. My family helped to build America. My family was here and laid, laid its roots deep down into America. It's a point of pride, a point of, I don't know, love and connection. Just because it doesn't have the same function doesn't mean that it's not important. When Jesus says that the law will pass away, and I think that he means the law passes away at the crucifixion and death and resurrection of our Lord, he doesn't mean that it's abolished, but he means that its function is different, that, that something has changed, that, that while it is still important and it is still valid and it is still something that we ought to love and uphold, even as he will come down to say, Nevertheless, it's, it's different now. Now, even if that is true, and I will admit I'm reading quite a bit into what abolish and pass away mean there, we have to do something with those words. It brings up the question of how, how then are we actually meant to keep the law? If the law changes its function, if the law doesn't look the same, it doesn't act the same with us, if we aren't to treat it exactly the same, but, but still appreciate it, love it, read it, understand it, how then are we supposed to handle it? Well, that brings us to our second point, and that is that Jesus interprets the law. Jesus interprets the law. Jesus warns in verse 19 that just as his intent isn't to abolish the law, to erase it or to annul it into non-existence, to make people forget it forever, he's, his purpose isn't to do that that whoever goes to the law 
and, and seeks to undo even the smallest of the commandments, even the least of the commandments, is smallest or least in the kingdom of heaven. I think the way to think of this is, again, think of, a, think of that word abolish being used for construction and think of a great big brick building. And Jesus says, I haven't come to completely demolish it and flatten it out. As a matter of fact, I've come to fulfill it. The word that's used here for loosen is, is sort of put on a prefixed steroid and is then moved to mean abolish. The, the two words aren't related at all in English, but in Greek they're actually closely related. It's sort of like what Jesus says, I won't do to the whole building, you are saying, but I can do to the smallest of bricks in the building. That I enter the building of the law and I see something that is, is a little discolored, I see something that, that isn't quite mortared in the way I think it should be, or I see something that I just don't like and I'm... It's just a brick, man. It's just a brick. I'm not trying to dismantle the whole thing. I just, I just hate that one little brick being there. I just, it trips me. I, I don't like how it looks. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just, just remove it from the wall, Jenga-like. The whole structure is going to stay, but I'm just going to take that one piece out. There are other people who listen to what Jesus says here and think that his intention is to say, the least in the kingdom are actually not in the kingdom. They are the people who don't meet the requirements of the greater righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, and therefore they're not in the kingdom. I don't think it means that. I think they do meet the Lord in the kingdom. I think the problem here is that they, they just don't look like Jesus. The people who are greatest in the kingdom of heaven are the people who on the earth have looked and walked in this world as much like Jesus as anybody else. And because of this action, because they are doing the very thing that Jesus has taught them not to do, and by their actions, have also led others to do the very thing that Jesus has told them not to do. They are supplanting the words of Jesus. They are, they are making their own ideas greater than that of Jesus. And because they do this, they aren't acting like Jesus. They're not modeling Jesus for others. They are actually least in the kingdom of heaven. Those who are greatest are those who take the opposite path. And now the, the focus shifts, though. It's not just from people who teach, but people who do. And if we are to find some sort of contradiction between Matthew, if you will, and Paul, or Jesus and Paul, this is where we would find it. Because what Jesus seems to be saying is, you not only cannot mess with the smallest of the commandments, but brother, you've got to do it. And Paul, Paul seems to be saying exactly the opposite thing. Jesus seems to be saying, if you don't do the least of the law, then you aren't, you're right on the edge of not coming into the kingdom. And Paul says, if you do the law, you're right on the edge of not coming into the kingdom. And Paul says this in Galatians 5. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. This circumcision, just, just circumcision. It's not, it's not the smallest of the commandments, but Paul is saying if you, if you go down that path, you are cut off from Christ. That is a dead end. Literally dead hell no redemption, no salvation, you're done. But Jesus here seems to be saying exactly the opposite. You take a smaller command, 
and you keep it, you've got to keep all of them. Well, the question becomes, I think, if this is a contradiction, who are we supposed to follow, Jesus or Paul? And the answer is, of course, yes, we follow both. And I don't have time to talk about what Paul means in context, but I do have time to talk about what Jesus means in context, and it is important. When we say that Jesus interprets the law, we don't just mean that Jesus gives us the right interpretation of the law, which could very well be the case, and oftentimes he does. As he's going to say, you have heard it said unto you, but I say unto you. The whole point of him doing that is is this understanding of the law is wrong, this understanding of the law is correct. So he does indeed interpret the law for us. But what I mean by that is something a little bit more full than that. It's that Jesus is our interpretation of the law. That if we are going to rightly understand the law, if we're going to rightly understand how we keep it, what it means for us today, we have to understand everything through Jesus Christ. We have to understand through who he is, what he has done, what he has spoken, his, his life, his deeds, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, all of that. This is for everything, from the largest commandments down to the smallest ones. This isn't just backed up by his fulfilling the law up in verse 17, although I, I think that it is. He is the fulfillment. He is the, the sum total of the law. But the rest of Matthew, who upholds doing the law, speaks to this. Jesus' problems with the Jewish leadership stemmed in, good, in a good portion from his understanding of the Sabbath. He healed on the Sabbath. It annoyed them. Just wait till Sunday to heal. It's just one day. The guy, guy's lived with a crippled hand for 40 years. He can make it one more day. And Jesus says, no, today's the day. What's more than that, his disciples in Matthew 12 would walk through the fields on the Sabbath and pick the heads of grain. And you and I might think that is no big deal, but to the Jews of the day, that was work, and that work was illegal. It was a sin before God, as though God wasn't capable of, of helping them. And frankly, it was just lazy. They should have had grain picked yesterday. Jesus answers their questions about the Sabbath, but the way he answers it is incredibly important. In Matthew 12, Jesus says this. This is not the first answer, the only answer that he gives, but this is one of them. Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? That word profane, I think you should understand it, is is make the Sabbath like every other day. The Sabbath wasn't to be like every other day. It was to be unique and special and set aside. But the, the priests treat it like it's a Tuesday. And he says they're guiltless. Jesus goes on to say, I tell you something greater than the temple is here, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The argument there is that the temple still needed work on the Sabbath. The the deeds of of keeping the temple and the the things that were put before the priests still needed to go on, even on the Sabbath. And so it was allowed for them to work because the the work of the tabernacle or the work of the temple, in this case, superseded the importance of the Sabbath. They were allowed, under the law, to work on the Sabbath because the work that they were doing was more important than just keeping the Sabbath. And Jesus looks out and he says, but... Something better than the temple is here. Like, I, I 
am more important than the temple. If I say, because I am the Lord of the Sabbath, that my disciples can pick the heads of grain, you better know that they're allowed to. I am the interpretation of the law. Do you want to know what's allowed on the Sabbath? What I do on the Sabbath is what is allowed, because I am the interpretation of the law. If they're allowed to do what's not allowed on the Sabbath because the temple is there, then if I'm here, they can do whatever I allow them to. The same can be said for things like dietary regulations, which Jesus seems to undo in Matthew 15. We can point to other ways in which not even the gospel points us to this, but like something like the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. How do Christians today keep the Day of Atonement? Yom Kippur, the, the centerpiece of the entire Torah, where the, the high priest lays his hands on that animal, sacrifices it for the guilt of the people. I mean, it's easy. We, it's fulfilled in Jesus. We keep the Day of Atonement in Jesus. But it's not a day that occurs every year. It has occurred once for all. Jesus has died. He has been buried and he's been resurrected. He has taken all of our guilt. Do we uphold Leviticus 16? Absolutely we do. In Christ. In some cases, our understanding of the law must change in light of the words of deeds of Jesus. Things like the Sabbath. In other cases, the application of the law needs to be changed because of the words and deeds of Jesus. In other cases, the purpose of the law has somewhat run its course. It may be seen as fulfilled and completed in Christ, like the sacrifice of Yom Kippur. Even the rest of chapter 5 is a testament of this. Jesus will continually point towards not only the law, but the interpretation of the law present at the time and say, this is what you've heard, but this is what I'm telling you. He has a right to say that it's not enough just not to murder anymore, even though that seems to be what the Old Testament says. He has the right to do that because he is the fulfillment of the law. We interpret the law through Jesus. He is the interpretation of the law for us. So the question becomes, do we keep the law in all of its minutia? And the answer is absolutely we do, but we do it through Jesus. In some cases, that means that the law has passed away. It has changed its form, changed its function, changed what it looks like, but we still uphold the law. To put it another way, as one wise man once said, do we overthrow the law because we trust in Christ? No. On the contrary, we uphold the law. That was, by the way, Paul. Jesus interprets the law for us. So it doesn't necessarily look the same way. It doesn't sound the same way. But nevertheless, the law is not something that is foreign to us. The law is not something that is completely alien to us. We still uphold it, but we hold, uphold it by faith in Jesus Christ. The third thing I want to point out for you this morning is that Jesus internalizes the law. He internalizes the law. We and the audience that Christ is speaking to are completely different on where we find the shocking parts of these four verses. We are quite shocked because we've been so trained by Paul and by teachers, and I don't think wrongly, to hear Jesus say that you have to keep even the smallest of the commandments. And, and that, we're kind of 
taken aback by that because that's, that's not what Paul seems to say. That's not what we're told that we have to do. We don't comb through the law to find even the smallest commandment that we might uphold it. So we're a little bit shocked by that, but frankly, that sort of teaching wasn't surprising at all for people of the day. This is exactly what the Pharisees would, would hold up. They would say, hey, you, the law is there. The law is the word of God. You got to keep the law. That wouldn't have shocked the people who were hearing it at all. We, on the other hand, hear what Jesus says in verse 20 and think, oh, well, that's not a problem. Because we think of the scribes and the Pharisees as rascals and snakes. We see them as nothing but a bunch of hypocrites who, who really aren't holy at all. And so how much could it really take to exceed them? But I guarantee you the people who were there would have been shocked to hear that. And as bad of news as it would have been for us to hear that we need to keep every single jot and tittle of the law, the people then would have been shocked to hear that they needed to not just exceed, which doesn't quite grasp the significance. It makes it sound like as long as you got an 80 and they got a 79 on the test, you passed. And that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you've got to far exceed. You've got to greatly exceed what they do. These people would have been the pinnacle of righteousness and holiness in the land. People would have had nothing but admiration for the Pharisees and the scribes. And Jesus is being quite emphatic. The question becomes, how are we supposed to do this? The answer comes in the verses that we'll not get to today. As he's going to give six different accounts of the things that that Pharisees do or that you've heard in the past and that we are not to do today. That we are to far exceed what the law claims that we are to do. And in all of these, it seems as though it's not just the outward action that we are meant to take. The law tells us that we're not supposed to murder, but what Jesus is going to do is say, it's actually your inner disposition that that that's getting at. It's not just the fact that you didn't stab somebody. It's the fact that, that you were angry at them. The point that he's going to repeatedly drive home is simply the fact that the law is external to us. The law is something that, that we're supposed to do. The law is something that people in that time thought that they were supposed to do. But Jesus is going to turn around and say, the law here is not something that you're just supposed to do. It's something that you're supposed to want to do. And there's a huge difference between doing things that you're supposed to do versus doing things you want to do. All of us have had jobs before where we have to do things that we're supposed to do. But we don't always have jobs that we do things that we want to do. The law is not just to be an external casing around you so that you can look at God at the end of time and say, you asked me to do this and I did it, all right? Did I want to do it? No, I didn't want to. I wanted to stabby stabby, but I didn't, right? Like, you don't get to argue that way with God because God's going to say, that's not the point. Jesus is telling us that it's, it's about the internal stature of your heart. So the, the scribes and the Pharisees think that they can get along just fine as long as they keep the exact written code that's there. But what Jesus is saying is that code never made it into their heart. The law of the Lord was never written on their hearts. This is exactly what he's holding out to us. The kingdom of God 
And those who belong to the kingdom of God must have the law of the Lord inscribed in their hearts. They must desire it. And this is where falling back on those beatitudes is incredibly helpful. Yet you are to be the kind of people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not just those who outwardly have it, but who honestly desire a righteousness that says, I want to do what the Lord requires of me. That when you sin, you say, I want that passion to be taken away from me. I want that drive to be taken away from me. I don't, I don't want to gossip. I don't want to be angry. I don't want to lust anymore. I, I want a righteousness that isn't just external so that people can't look at me and accuse me of something, but as internal, where I don't even desire those things anymore. Where you know that you are poor in spirit because you don't have the things that you want and you desire We do well to remember that this is still a kingdom of grace and mercy. What God wants is for you to want what he wants. Not not specifically in this world for you to have it, but to desire it. Jesus internalizes the law. And if you truly do hear Jesus correctly, you should be somewhere on the scale from mildly concerned to very concerned because you don't have that. You don't have that, and I don't have that. There's very few people in here, I think, who would, who would in some stature be able to look at the lives of the, the Pharisees and the way that they lived and say, hey, man, I'm killing it more than they are. But we are to be people who long to be that. And in that sense, our righteousness has already vastly exceeded theirs. To long for a righteousness, to long for holiness, to long be pure in your heart, to love God and to seek him. That is a righteousness that far outstrips the deeds of any other person who doesn't care a lick about doing what God wants in their heart, only so long as they can't be accounted for it in their flesh. As long as they, no one can look at them and say, you know, you, you did this, you did that. The promise is for those who understand their plight, who know of their need of God, to remember that this is a God, kingdom of righteousness, yes, but it's also a kingdom of mercy and grace. Jesus sacrifices for us on our behalf. His death and his burial and his resurrection are still central to everything that we uphold. Even as we strain to be these kinds of people, we always, always come back to the cross of Jesus Christ to remind ourselves that he forgives, that he is merciful, that he's kind and loving and good. In our failure, we trust his forgiveness. In his weakness, in our weakness, we trust in his strength. So press on for this sort of greater righteousness. Ask God to give you a desire to upkeep the law through Jesus Christ, that you might honestly and rightly desire what the Lord teaches here, so that you can say these words according to what Psalm 119 says. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. 
confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Let us pray. Our God, we long for these things we do not have. We long for purity and holiness before you, for clean hearts and clear eyes, for strength against our sin, and forgiveness when that strength runs out. We seek your law and your purpose in it, not because by these we earn a place before you, but precisely because of your great love and mercy poured out for us in Jesus on the cross do we strive to please you. Let us love you and seek to keep your commands because you first loved us. Change us from the old lives and practices in which we used to walk, that we might be renewed in the image of our Creator and our Redeemer. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, for our good and for your glory. Amen. If you would stand with us and sing our song of response, so church, arise. <clears throat>